You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still asleep, or still, excuse me, still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, as we have sung together in song, we pray now that you would turn our eyes upon Jesus. I confess that we are, in many respects, very helpless. We know that apart from your grace, we are dead in our sins. Even now, those of us whom you have made alive depend completely upon you. We depend upon you, Lord, to cause your work in us to be such that your grace toward us would not be in vain. We depend upon you. We depend upon you, Lord, for the increase of our faith, for the preaching of the word. Lord, if you will not preach, if you will not speak now, then all that is done here will be in vain. And so we do pray, O God, that you would help all of us together to come as though to the feet of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would open our eyes that we would see with eyes of faith the Lord Jesus Christ, who is wonderful and who is lovely and who is worthy to be praised that we would rejoice again in what has been done for us, that we would be once again amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and that we would glory together in the cross, and that we would go from this place no longer fearing death, no longer hanging our heads down, but rejoicing in the great God of our salvation, glorying in King Jesus. And I do pray, Father, for those who have come this morning who are still strangers to this Jesus, who do not know him, 
who are still bound in their sin, would you please set them free? Let this day be a day of salvation in this place. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was dealing with a lot of issues. And one of the issues that he comes to deal with here in this chapter is a group of people who were in the church who were denying the future bodily resurrection of believers. So they were saying that is not going to happen, that future day that we are looking forward to. They're saying it's not happening. It's behind us. And so when the scripture speaks of the resurrection, they were saying it was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. So Paul asks them, if Christ is preached that he rose from the dead, how do you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you say that? And then he reasons with them. And I want this morning to look with you at the way he reasons with them. And there are at least three arguments that he makes. And as he makes these arguments, they build one upon the other. So he begins by making first the argument that if there is no future bodily resurrection of believers, then Christ is not risen. That's number one. And second, that if there is no future bodily resurrection of believers, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching and your faith is in vain. And then third, if there is no future bodily resurrection of believers, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then we are, of all men, most to be pitied. So we'll start with the first. If there is no resurrection of the dead, he says, then Christ is not risen. What he's saying to them is this, essentially. Don't you realize, don't you understand that you cannot have the one without the other? He takes for granted, as he writes to the, the people in Corinth, that they know, they know that Christ himself is risen from the dead. He says, listen, this is what we came preaching to you. We came preaching this very message. And what did that resurrection mean? Why did Jesus do this? Why did he go to Calvary? Why then was he buried and then risen from the dead? If not, so that one day you too would also rise. So there's the logic. Why all of that, if not for this future resurrection that is coming? And I think it's actually quite encouraging the way that he does this because it actually reassures us in our times of doubt. And I say that not because I believe that uh, as, as, as Christians that uh, we doubt the concept but I think sometimes we, are, we find it a bit incredible. It's hard for us to imagine it. So we know as believers that our Redeemer lives. We know that. There's no question. But we cannot see this coming day. There are so many things that we can, we can see with our physical eyes and we can touch them, we can hear them, we can feel them. But that day... And all that it will entail, and we cannot see it, cannot touch it, we cannot hear it. It's something, this future bodily resurrection of believers is something that, in a sense, defies everything that we have experienced. So it's encouraging to, to read the logic of the Apostle Paul here. He's saying you need to understand that if you deny the resurrection uh, that is coming, then you must then also at the same time deny that Christ is raised. If there isn't a future resurrection, then Christ isn't risen. So you cannot deny the one and keep the other. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He rose for our justification. He did it specifically for us. Remember that the Bible says that we are the body of Christ. So we are the body. He is the head. I believe it was Samuel Rutherford who said that um, if the head is safe, so is the body. And our head is safe. Our head is risen. Therefore, we too will also rise. So that's the first argument. But he's not finished. 
making his case. He goes on point two as he builds to say that if there is no future resurrection of believers, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then guess what? All our preaching and your faith and my faith is vain. And so I ask you now, can you say that? Can you say that? The reason I ask the question is because for some people, being part of the church is a bit like being part of a club. It's a bit like being part of some kind of an organization that you come together with people who hold certain things in common. You encourage one another. Gives you a sense of belonging, which is nice. Connects you with all kinds of people. On top of that, you get to learn how to live a good life. In some churches, that's pretty well all the preaching is. You, you get to be encouraged with these hopeful messages that are preached week by week. And in the end, generally speaking, if you're a religious person, you're a happier person for it. So whether it's true or not really doesn't matter. Now, Paul, of course, is not, as he writes this, he's not simply saying that this doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, matters to him. He's not saying that. It certainly does. No, he's saying Christ himself is actually risen. And the Apostle Paul knows this with complete certainty. There's no doubting or wavering on his part. He is one of the witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice the language he uses here. He says, well, essentially, what happens if... There is no resurrection. If you take that doctrine and you throw it out, if in fact there is no coming resurrection of all these bodies which have been laid on the ground, well then, in that case, Christ isn't risen. And what does that mean, if Christ isn't risen? It means that all the preaching that you hear, it means that the faith that you have is vain. It's completely vain. So why would Paul say that? Now, there are lots of people, again, who, who think that the Bible is a fine book to study and to learn, whether Jesus is who he says he is or isn't. There are lots of people who would say, well, you know, they're interested in these things, interested in, in, the, in the stories of the Bible, interested in uh, the character of Jesus Christ. It's, this is all very famous. It's it's fascinating, it's useful, and if you live your life going to church, you know, the studies show that it actually does improve your sense of, overall sense of well-being. It's good for the emotional health. And if all your life you feel better about dying because you believe in this place called heaven, so what if you're wrong? You were happy while you were alive. It's a bit blissful ignorance, but it's blissful. See the thinking? The idea is if, if you have this, this system that you hold to and you, you cling to it and you believe and you believe and you believe, well, the studies show it makes you happier in the end. So why, can, why is Paul then saying that if this, is, if this be the case, if Christ is not risen, then your faith and my faith is vain? Well, there are at least two reasons. First of all, if Christ is not preach, if Christ is not risen, our preaching and the faith is in vain. Why? Because Jesus Christ Himself is the gospel. You see, the Bible says that the gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what it is. Now, most of us understand in this place that gospel means good news. Well, what is the good news? When we say good news, what are we talking about? Well, we're not talking about heaven, primarily. We're talking about God himself. He's the good news. The good news is that we gain, we gain him, God. That though we deserve to be condemned and cast out of his presence forever, that we may be then reconciled to God in Christ and dwell with him forever and ever and ever. When the Bible comes to us saying that there is good news, 
Well, you understand that, that something is being offered to you. Again, when pastors come saying they have glad tidings of great joy, missionaries come saying they have glad tidings of great joy, what are the glad tidings? What's the great joy? It's Jesus Christ himself. He's the message. And so if he is not actually risen, then you have nothing. You have gained nothing. The Apostle Paul Remember, said, I count all things, not many things, but all things, loss. He counts them loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So here's a man, he's saying that everything else is loss in comparison to the great excellency of knowing Jesus. Everything else beside him, complete loss. In fact, he says, for him, for Jesus, I have willingly suffered the loss of all things. And for Paul, this was a good trade. He's taken everything and he's put it on one side of the scales and he's put over here the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, what I have over here, all of this, even if I had worlds, is nothing. It's garbage in comparison to Christ. All this man wants, and he says this as he writes from a prison, all he wants is to win Jesus. He wants to have him and belong to him forever. So you take Christ from this man and you have taken more than a world from him. And so I want to ask you this morning, congregation, have you come to know and prize Jesus Christ like the Apostle Paul did? So that you can say today, if he is not risen, my faith is vain. My going to church, my singing, my traditions, all of it is complete loss and utter emptiness apart from Jesus. If I don't gain him, if for all my singing and all my studying and all my memorizing and all my religious activity, I don't gain Christ, I have gained absolutely nothing. Brothers and sisters, what is our life? What is your life without Jesus? Think for a moment. What are your riches? What's your home? What's your family, your spouse, your children without Jesus? It is all vanity and so much nothing. There's no gain in it. There's no joy in it. There's no light in any of it apart from him. Thomas Brooks was a, a Puritan. He said this. This is a man who knew something of the experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. He said, the least drop of grace, the least drop of grace, the least smile from heaven, the least cast of Christ's countenance, the least kiss of his mouth, the least embrace of his arm, the least hint of his favor is worth more than 10,000 worlds. And only a Christian, only a saved man or woman could ever agree with those words. This is not something you're taught in a classroom. This is not something you read about in a textbook. This is known only truly and really by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that if Christ is not raised, how foolish all this would be? You think of the, the madness of a group of people like us spending week after week, and I know for many of you it's not just what goes on on the Lord's Day, but you know, just imagine all the things we could be doing on Sundays. And here we are singing songs which would have absolutely no meaning and no value apart from Christ. What would it matter the, 
are coming together and rejoicing in someone's baptism, coming together around the Lord's table. If our Redeemer does not live, what is this? But Paul goes on, he says in verse 15, that if Christ isn't risen, we are all false witnesses dying for a lie. Because we said that we saw him. Verse 16, he repeats what he said in verse 14, and then he adds this second argument in verses 17 to 18. Let me read that again. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So once again, he says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is vain. But then he explains, because it, then you're still in your sins. And all those who have fallen asleep, all those who have died before us, they are all perished. You know, there is this idea that is out there among some Christians, or at least some in the name of Christ, who are teaching that the resurrection of Jesus is kind of this um, minimum thing that you've got to cling to. You don't have to hold on to all the other stuff, but at least believe that. No, the reality is that the resurrection of Jesus is connected on one hand to the future bodily resurrection of the saints. And that, of course, is because of the cross of Calvary. And the cross has no meaning apart from the law and the prophets. Jesus died for our sins. But then if he didn't rise, what would that mean for us? Well, it mean that God did not actually accept his atonement. That's what that would mean. It would mean that God's justice had not actually been satisfied by what Jesus did as he took our place. That his wrath is actually not turned away from us, but still upon us now. That we're still in our sin, still under God's wrath and condemnation. Now, remember, Paul here is taking something for granted that he has been constantly driving home in all of his letters. That God is holy. God is one who cannot even look upon sin. And this holy God has given us his law. He's written it upon the consciences of men. And he will one day hold each and every one accountable for the deeds done in the body. So that all of us will stand one day before him and have to answer for everything that we have done, everything that we have thought, everything we have said, all the things we've left undone. We will be held to account not only for that, but for why we did what we did. And all who have not, listen, all who have not continued in all of it to do every last bit of it, who have not crossed every T and dotted every I all the time for the whole of their lives, they will be cursed. They will go to hell. So to say that there is no resurrection from the dead is to say that Christ didn't rise. If Christ didn't rise, then we're still in our sins and we're going to spend an eternity in hell. That's the consequence. That's what he's saying. And not only us, but every last one who's fallen asleep, everyone who has gone before us, there isn't any hope for any of them. You know, Paul couldn't be more clear on this. He, he constantly hammers this home in his letters. And it is this, that people do not get to heaven by living a good, reasonably good life. They don't get to heaven by being decent people. They don't get to heaven by being religious people, however religious they are. The just, the Bible says, the just shall live by faith, and that by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. We are born in our sins, and we would simply stay in our sins if God had not provided a Savior to save us from our sins. Paul's point is that a dead Savior cannot save now, he did die on the cross, and he was buried. Suppose he never rose. What would that mean? That would simply mean this. It would mean that his offering for sins, his offering for my sins, was not acceptable to God. It would mean that Jesus 
as, as, as irreverent as it seems to be to even say it, that somehow Jesus didn't succeed. And if there is no firstborn from the dead, there can be no others born from the dead. And that would mean that our believing in him is vain. I was sharing with somebody uh, earlier this week, it might have been on the way to the conference, but about a man that we learned about in seminary. We were supposed to learn about this man because he was considered to be a great scholar. And I should preface all this by saying that I went to a liberal seminary. A seminary did not hold very seriously to the scriptures. And so we're learning about this man who was supposedly a great scholar, great Christian scholar, who said that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not a vital truth. So whether it happened or not, he said, didn't really ultimately matter. What mattered, according to this man, was faith, believing. So something like the signs that we see sometimes put on somebody's wall in their home, believe, just believe. Whether what you believe in has any truth or not doesn't matter. And this man furthermore believed that what mattered was not so much the resurrection, but how you live and that you believe that Jesus is precious, whether he's alive or not. Now, do you hear in all of that the madness of it, the stupidity of such thinking? I was asked to write a paper, and I, in my paper I said that the man was a heretic. I was rebuked for saying so, and I was told in my paper that, well, he was a pious man. Christian, so what? So what if he was a pious man? What does piety matter? What does a good Christian life matter if Jesus is not risen? Pious or not, we're still in our sins. And believing on Jesus, we would be wasting our time. And everything we're doing here would be vain. Which brings us to the third argument the apostle makes as he builds his case. And so you remember, if if there's no future resurrection from the dead, that means Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching and your faith and my faith is vain. And if Christ is not risen, it gets, in a sense, worse. If Christ is not risen, then we are of all men most to be pitied. So you take all the world and you put them over here. Beside, on one, over, on one hand, all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is saying this, that if Christ is not risen, we, this group, the believing group, are the ones to be most pitied. I wonder if you can say that. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, most to be pitied. And I ask that question because I do not believe that all that many in the broader church can truthfully say it. Now they might say it, but it wouldn't be the truth. You see, they live, the great body of people in North America who name the name of Christ with their lips, they live like the world. If Christ isn't risen, I'm not saying that wouldn't be disappointing to them because they've been taught to believe that they're going to go to heaven. They'd like that. Many of them having no idea what, heaven, what will make heaven heaven. But all the same, there would be some disappointment there but could you actually say, as you look at their life, could you actually say that if Jesus is not risen, that they are of all men most miserable? I don't think so. Because they live just as pleasant lives as the world, enjoy the very same good things, have the same hobbies, 
play the same sports, lead the same ordinary life, safe, happy, everything's the same. So what's so miserable about them? What does Paul mean when he says that if Jesus Christ is not risen, that we are most to be pitied? Well, I'm going to give you two reasons. Two reasons why. Number one, the Apostle Paul was living for eternity. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ told us not to lay up treasures in earth. The understanding being we brought nothing into this world and we can carry nothing out. And all the treasures we have here, we know intellectually at least, not only are we going to leave them behind, they're going to decay. And so where are we to lay up our treasures? We're to lay up our treasures in a place where they won't rust and they won't decay, where they won't be stolen. We're to lay them up in Heaven. Well, here's a man who is living his life, laying up in store for himself. And I want you to think for a moment about the man's life, about Paul's life. I think to many people, he seemed to be out of his mind. He said so. He seemed to be out of his mind. You know, he spent his life traveling from place to place to place, and Paul wasn't sightseeing. He wasn't having a vacation. What was Paul doing? He was traveling from place to place to place to preach Jesus. What did Paul gain for all his labors? We see of some, some people in the, in the United States especially, but there are people across the world who, uh, for their religious efforts, have become quite rich. Here's a man. He's been in and out of, in and out of prison. He has been beaten more than once. He's been stoned to the point where they thought he was dead. He's been whipped, almost killed at sea. Hungry, he said, thirsty, tired. I've often thought that it would have been very interesting to meet the Apostle Paul. He wasn't a very old man when he died, but I believe that if, if we would have met Paul we would have thought, found him to look rather old. And Paul would have worn his life out. He wore himself down. And yet he was rejoicing. Because like his master, he had no home here, a home to come. This was a man who literally sacrificed his life for the gospel. He died when he did because in the end he would not deny Jesus. So they took him outside in the middle of a, perhaps a hostile crowd and they beheaded him. And so you think about Paul and ask yourself, what kind of life was that? What kind of life did Paul have? Do you know how many Christian leaders in our generation would have told Paul, Paul, you need to settle down. You need to take care of yourself. You've got to learn balance. Paul didn't know that kind of balance. He was a man who was seeking with God's help to imitate Jesus Christ and so walk in this world as Jesus walked. And he was consumed with the cause of Christ. A man who had a heart constrained by the love of Christ so that he could even say that he could almost wish himself to be accursed for his fellow countrymen. All that mattered to him was that God might be glorified in the salvation of sinners. That was it. That was his whole life. His whole life. So can you begin to see why Paul would say that if Christ is not risen, we of all men are most miserable, most to be pitied? Poor Paul. All the things he could have accomplished, the life he could have lived. Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. And he forfeited that chance. Why? Because he understood that the Christian life comes with a price tag. And that if we are in real earnest about serving Jesus, there are things that, we're, that, are going to, that others do, we will not do. And not only because they're, they're sinful, there are many things that are sinful we won't do, but there will be some things that aren't even sinful we won't do, because why? Because we've got better things to do. We have better ways to spend our money. We have better things to do with our time. You see, the Christian labors his whole life for, his, for eternity. 
He's day after day, week after week, month after month, he's laying up constantly treasures in heaven. You take that from him, what has he got? What's he done? You take his future reward, the promise of eternity from him, and you've robbed him of everything. He's a fool. I want you to imagine this. This is actually based on a true story of a missionary. I want you to imagine leaving your country. You've decided that God has called you out of love for him to leave your countrymen, to leave your family and your neighbors and your friends, and you're going to go and tell a group of people you've never met with all different customs than your own about Jesus Christ. And on the way to tell them about Jesus, after all that you've done to prepare, on the way, one of your children dies. You get there, and your wife contracts an illness common in the area, and she dies. So you've sold your home, you've, sold it, you've left everything, left everyone, and it's now cost you not only that, but even your dearest loved ones. Why? Why would anyone do that? Because you believe in hell. You believe in heaven. You believe there's a redeemer. And above all else, you want this redeemer to receive the reward of his suffering. That's why. I remember hearing about these two men, these two Moravian brothers, I believe they were brothers, who literally sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery to take the gospel message to a people who otherwise would never have been able to hear it. The only way to get to them was to become slaves themselves. And so committed were they to the reward of Christ, so committed to the gospel, they sold themselves forever. Now, if those boys are wrong, and this missionary who took his family was wrong. If I'm wrong and you're wrong, we've wasted our lives. They're a tragic waste. Can you see why the world might pity us? Why the world might look upon a person like that and wonder what's going on here? I asked you the question a moment ago, can you, can you say this? Because I believe the passage demands it. It's a sobering, searching question. Can you honestly say that if Christ is not risen, you are of all men most to be pitied? Could others, by watching you as you go about your days, if, if they could see how you spend your time, what you do, if they could see what you do, with that money that you earn, could they say that apart from a coming day of resurrection, you're to be pitied? Are you living in such a way as to make men around you think you're a fool? Wasting your money, wasting your time on eternity. I know that most of you who have gathered here this morning have said that you will follow Jesus. You have, by saying so, you have meant at least, you ought to have meant that you've taken up your cross. And in taking up your cross, that means following Jesus down into death. Your life is not yours anymore. If you have followed Jesus down into death, it will begin to tell. People will notice, they'll see something strange, mad, crazy about you. And they may ask you why. You will then have an opportunity to share the gospel. That's the first reason. The second reason that I believe the Apostle Paul said this. It's related to what I said earlier, but Paul loved his Savior. He truly loved Jesus. Christ to him was precious. As I was thinking about this passage this week, I was remembering a time in my life, growing up in the church, when Christ was, was, 
someone that I was learning about. But he was not precious to me. My knowledge of Christ was textbook kind of knowledge. It was the kind of thing that goes from one head to another head. And then God broke through that darkness, that blindness, and revealed to me by his grace the glory, the glory of Christ. You see, this man, Paul, has been confronted by the power of the Holy Spirit with a sight by faith of the risen Savior. Yes, he's an eyewitness, but this man is acquainted with the glory of Christ. This is the one that he said, beside whom he's counted all other things as dung. He didn't just say, well, there's all these things in my life, and I, I, I like this, and I like this, and I like this, and I also like Christianity. I'm also a Christian. There's all these other passions I have. I'm a passionate football fan, and I'm a passionate this and a passionate that, and I'm also very passionate about Jesus. No, everything else, he says, it's beside Christ. It's garbage, rubbish, dung. It's for Jesus that he labored the way he did, for Jesus that he was tireless in his service, for Jesus that he was willing to be whipped and beaten and stoned, imprisoned, and then killed. If in this life, this man had hope only, only here, what would that mean? And I ask you now to think through that question with me. If our hope in Christ is only in this life, that means we cannot say with a psalmist, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can't say that. Please, this morning, think. What would your life be without him? No promise of seeing Jesus one day. Imagine that. Imagine no hope of being forever with God. Just an empty system, a dead book. It's appalling, absolutely appalling. I believe Paul was hinting at this, that he had not taken up a system, he had taken up Christ. Christ was his life. Christ was his everything. You take that from him. You take Jesus from him. And he is the most miserable of all men. Most to be pitied because you've taken more than worlds. You see, other people, so many people in our world and sadly in the church, they wander about in ignorance. What are they ignorant of? There's so much they have in here, but they have so little real, true heart knowledge of Jesus Christ. They know that God exists. They know God's law. They know they're sinners, and it makes them uncomfortable. But they do not know Christ. And hearing about him, they see nothing praiseworthy. They can recite fact after fact after fact, but he's not praiseworthy in their esteem. They are blind men who do not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They have no idea what they're missing. But if we are believers here today, we are not blind. For all the things I can't say about you, I can say this, that if you are a Christian, a saved believer here, you can see. We know him. We know Christ. Not only for what he has done at Calvary, but we know him for his majesty. We know him for his altogether loveliness. We know him as our exceeding great reward, our exceeding joy, we love him. We love him. He's precious to us now. You take Christ from us. And we are the most miserable men to be pitied above all other men. Now, you take our homes from us, that would be a shame. If you take our health from us, our money, even our families, our spouses, even our freedom, we are still rich. But you take Jesus from the Christian, and he's ruined, utterly ruined. And he's the most miserable of men. 
But brothers and sisters, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reasons like this for one reason. He is risen indeed. Our Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, bearing our sin. He was buried, and he's alive forevermore. And he will return. And this means, because he lives, we too shall live and not die. We sing that hymn, Because He Lives. All fear is gone. We can face tomorrow. Well, listen, because he lives, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. So you're here today and you've been born again. I can say to you that you will rise just as certainly as Jesus rose. He is the head, you are the body. And rising, I know there's so much mystery about what's ahead of us, so little we know about heaven. But what matters most What matters to you, to me and to you, I know, is that we will be with him forever. He will be our God and dwell with his people. And so, Christian, we are not the most miserable of men. We are not to be pitied, no matter what we have given up for Christ. Whether we've lost a home, a career, a family, our health, our freedom, We are still rich. Christians, please, please hear me. This is something that has come as something of a rebuke to me. But listen, no matter what you give up for Christ, no matter how you suffer, you will always, always, as Christians, be rich and happy, men and women. For nothing, nothing shall ever be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, not here and not forever. Now, as I, I bring this to a close, I do want to speak to another group here this morning. Now, God is the one who searches the heart. He knows your condition, your real condition. And I know there are some in this place today who are truly, truly miserable. Not in the sense that you feel miserable, but that you are really actually miserable, whether you know it or not. You're miserable because you're in bondage to sin. You're a slave to it. You can't help but sin. And if you continue in that bondage, you continued in that sin, you will be miserable for all eternity. Now, you may be somebody who, because you have eyes to see, you may pity a blind man, Blind woman, you happen to walk down the street and you see somebody who's wandering about with their cane and they cannot see and perhaps you pity them because they can't see the things you can see. And perhaps when you see somebody who is in a wheelchair or somebody who is paralyzed, you pity them because they cannot walk like you walk and run like you walk, run. But I'll tell you this morning, if you are without Christ, it is you I pity. Because that person in the wheelchair who has Christ has everything. That person who is blind, who has Christ, has everything. But you, without God, have nothing. The Bible says you who are without him are without hope. You're without God in the world. For all that you do see, you do not see Jesus. And unless God sets you free from your bondage, unless he comes as he did at the beginning when he shone light in the darkness, unless God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, shines in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you will suffer in misery forever and ever and ever. And there's only one way out of that. And it's through the person of Jesus Christ. He's the offer. Jesus is the offer. And today he stands willing, entreating, 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 pleading with you by the servants that he places even here in this place, saying, come now unto me, willing to set you free from the bondage, willing to pardon all of your sin, 
The Bible asks, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? All you have to do is nothing. And you will spend an eternity tormented in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so I urge you, I plead with you this morning, call on the name of Jesus Christ before it's too late. God says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repent of your sin, and then, then, live in such a way that makes sense only in light of the resurrection. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that we can gather here in this place today rejoicing together even as we confess our sins, even as we see ourselves in light of your law and your holiness, that we can rejoice because of what our Savior has done for us. That we can say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, we thank you for that great promise that you will take our sins and bury them in the deepest sea that you will remember them no more. And that because of what Christ has done, that we have this glorious hope that one day we shall see with these physical eyes our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for how Perhaps many of us have lived lives that maybe have not raised that question in the minds of others. And we do repent of that and ask, oh God, that you would help us to be people, men and women, who are laying up treasures in heaven, who are living not for this world, not for both worlds, but for eternity. Lord, I pray for those who've come to this place this morning who are strangers to these things, who find all this strange, who are hearing about the glories of Christ and the loveliness of Christ and the majesty of Christ, know nothing of this. Lord, in mercy, we pray that you would open their blind eyes, that you would break through that hard-heartedness and cause them to see, save them from their sin. Lord, as, as perhaps some even now in this place, cry out to you silently asking for, for your help and for salvation here, O oh God, and save. And Lord, I do pray that you would help all of us as we leave this place to go out once again amazed by what you've done, amazed that you who are so great and so holy would condescend to deal with sinners like us, that we should have such marvelous hope that we should be able to live in this world so rich. Father, how we thank you that we have Jesus, that we have Christ now, we have Christ tomorrow, and Christ forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.